Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. You know, you can buy those shirts that say, uh, I hope to be the person my dog thinks I am. I hope to be the person Bill Smith thinks I am. (laughs) Thank you, Bill. It is uh, great to be with you all. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want you to know it was uh, sunny and 68 degrees when I left uh, Alabama yesterday. Just a perfect spring day. Uh, You'll get to spring eventually, uh, I assume. Um, I will say this, you know, I, I, I do have roots in the South, but I did grow up in Chicago, and uh, so I always enjoy coming back to, uh, to the Midwest. Uh, do we have any hockey fans here? Any hockey fans? Okay, yes, yeah, so I'm always glad to be in the company of hockey fans. Hockey fans hold a special place in my heart. Uh, so um, that's something we don't have in the South. That's actually maybe the one sport the SEC does not dominate, right, Bill? Um, it is great to be with you all. We have such great fellowship in the CREC. Uh, I'm glad to enjoy this time with you. Uh, excited to, to, to see and hear a little bit of what's going on in Tyndale Presbytery. Uh, we just had our spring meeting in Athanasius Presbytery, which kind of covers the, the southeast uh, of the country. And, and that was a wonderful meeting. And uh, look forward to seeing what's going on with you all. Of course, I know a lot of, uh, of the men in your presbytery, so look forward to catching up with them uh, as well. Uh, I do believe God is doing many great things in the Series C, and uh, I'm certainly very thankful to be a part of it and to be a part of it with, with you all. Uh, and I do want to congratulate uh, Christ Church on 20 years. Uh, that is quite a milestone. Uh, That is very exciting. God's faithfulness to a congregation spanning over two decades is certainly worthy of celebration. Bill said, I've I've been at my church for 19 years. We'll see if I make it to 20. You know, we'll see. (laughs) The jury's still out. (laughs) Now, that being said, uh, I don't have a classic church anniversary celebration sermon for you here tonight. Uh, Unless you are the type of person who is a real glutton for punishment, unless you like to be beaten over the head, uh, this is not going to be your classic church anniversary uh, sermon. So I do apologize for that. That's just the way it worked out. Uh, I didn't know that was going to be part of this when when I first took this assignment of coming here. I'm going to speak on Zephaniah uh, here tonight and tomorrow and hit some of the key highlights in Zephaniah's short uh, three-chapter prophecy. Zephaniah is an overlooked prophet, but his message, which is largely one of judgment, is full of instruction and wisdom for us. It is highly relevant, just as relevant uh, today as it was when it was first delivered about 2,600 years ago. Uh, I don't anticipate I'll say anything you haven't heard before, uh, but perhaps the Lord will will, uh, show you old truths in a new way uh, as we look at this. Let me read a little bit from the beginning of Zephaniah. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off from man the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. 
and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, in the day... Uh, that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over a threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate and wailing from the second quarter and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, For all the merchants' people are cut down, all those who handle money are cut off, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. And then I want to jump ahead into chapter 2. Gather yourselves to gather. Yes, gather to gather, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes, comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through this ancient prophet whom you inspired to deliver, yes, a message of judgment, but a message of judgment laced with hope, with redemption, with salvation, with the good news as well. Father, would you speak to us today through your word? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we open the book of Zephaniah, we are transported back in time to the 600s BC. We are transported back to ancient Jerusalem, to the days of good King Josiah. Uh, Zephaniah ministered during the days of Josiah. He was also a contemporary of Jeremiah and of Huldah, if you know those names from the Old Testament. Josiah came to the throne at age 8, and he reigned for 31 years. Before his reign began, Judah had begun to sink into deep idolatry and apostasy, particularly under the wicked king Ammon. During Josiah's reign, uh, he sought to reverse that uh, fall into depravity. Uh, In his 18th year as king, the book of Deuteronomy, which had been lost, was found. And this rediscovery of the law sparked a reformation in the land. King Josiah drove out the idolatry. He restored true worship. Uh, Josiah had actually started making reforms before the book of the law was found. After this rediscovery of the book of the law, he intensified his reforms, leading the people in repentance before the Lord. Zephaniah likely prophesied this, this writing, this book we have that bears Zephaniah's name. This most likely comes during the early part of Josiah's Reign. It was, it was probably, in fact, Zephaniah's threats of coming wrath 
that spurred Josiah on in his work of reforming the nation and leading the nation in repentance. And because of those reforms led by Josiah, the the various judgments that Zephaniah describes in his book that are uh, that are that are that are impending that are about to come were delayed for at least a bit because of those reforms Josiah made. Now, what is this book about? Zephaniah, like so many other prophets, announces the coming day of the Lord. The people of Judah thought the day of the Lord would bring great blessing to them. Zephaniah says, no, the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes to you, it will be a day of doom. It will not be a day of deliverance. It will be a day of wrath rather than blessing. Indeed, for them, uh, indeed, it will be a, a day of wrath, not only for Jerusalem, but as this prophecy shows us, for all the nations round about Jerusalem as well. Judgment will start with the people of God. Judgment will start with the house of God, but it will not end there. Uh, In Zephaniah, the Gentile nations are subjected to God's judgment as well. So really, you could say it's a universal judgment. All peoples, nations, ethnicities, races will be judged. These judgments Zephaniah has in view, certainly they are historical judgments, judgments that we could say have now taken place in history. They are in the past as far as we are concerned. But these historical judgments Zephaniah describes, he uses such totalizing language to describe them. There really can be no question that these historical judgments he's talking about are really a foreshadowing of the last day, of the final judgment. What I want us to do tonight is look uh, at a good bit of chapter 1 and then the first few verses of chapter 2 tomorrow. Uh, I'll pick up on some key sections in Zephaniah chapter 3. But tonight we're going to look at parts of chapter 1 and into the first part of chapter 2. And this is what we're going to see. First, the result of the judgment. Second, the reasons for the judgment. And third, the rescue from the judgment. So Zephaniah says judgment is coming. What will be the result of that judgment? What are the reasons for that judgment? And is there any hope of rescue from that judgment? So first, let's talk about the result. Start in verse 1. Uh, we need to meet Zephaniah. Steve introduced Bill. Bill introduced me. I'm going to introduce Zephaniah to you. Okay, so this is Zephaniah. Who is it? What do we know about him? Uh, what do we know about the man Zephaniah? This book opens, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. That tells us right there that he is a prophet, that the prophecy he delivers will have all of the perfections and authority of God himself and must be received as such. This is God's very word. Zephaniah will be God's mouthpiece, God's scribe, God's spokesman when he brings this message. Zephaniah's name is significant. Zephaniah's name means Yahweh hides. Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. And that's going to be, that'll be very significant actually to the prophecy uh, as a whole. Then we're given Zephaniah's family tree. This is also very interesting. It's also very relevant to parts of the prophecy. He is the son of Cushi. Cushi means Ethiopian. So a Cushite or an Ethiopian. Of course, Ethiopia is a country in North Africa. So apparently what you have here is a God-fearing Ethiopian man married into a Jewish family, and Zephaniah was the result. There are lots of examples of racial intermarriage or inter-ethnic marriage uh, in the old covenant scriptures. This would be one of them. Uh, Zephaniah has an Ethiopian father and a Jewish mother, so he is the descendant of an inter-ethnic marriage. He is the son of an Ethiopian father apparently living in 
Israel. Now, that's actually really, really significant here. That's an important piece of what is going to happen in this prophecy because a major theme, especially towards the end of the book, is the reuniting of the nations. God has promised to reunite the nations through the gospel. Zephaniah, in a way, embodies that in himself as this product of a, an Ethiopian father and a Jewish mother. So he is a Cushite, the son of Cushy. It's also interesting to note that his prophecy speaks to both Cush's destruction and Cush's restoration in chapters 2 and 3. So he's going to prophesy about his father's homeland. Going further back in his family history, we find he is the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. So Zephaniah not only has Gentile blood, Ethiopian blood in his veins, he has royal blood in his veins as well. He's part of the royal house of Judah, the royal house of Israel, which will also be helpful because he is going to deliver at least parts of his message to other members of the royal family in Judah. He's going to address the royalty in the land. And then we have a time stamp on the prophecy. The word of the Lord came to him in the days of Josiah. And then, then the prophet describes what this judgment will be like. And if you had to put it into a word, this judgment will be a decreation. What is the result of this judgment? Decreation. Redemption in the Bible is often presented as a new creation. So judgment here is described as a decreation. Now, Zephaniah is not saying that the world will be physically decreated, but there will be a social decreation. Their world, that is their social and covenantal world, will come undone. It will fall apart. It will be ripped apart at the seams. Uh, Jeremiah, again, Zephaniah's contemporary, delivers a message of judgment to the people of Israel, the covenant people, using really the exact same kind of language, judgment as a decreation. God says through Zephaniah, he will gather everything up and he will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This language is reminiscent uh, of the flood account in Genesis chapter 6, where God sweeps away everything on the earth. Again, it also echoes the creation account. In the creation account in Genesis 1, the earth is empty and God fills it. The earth is going to be empty once again. God's going to empty the earth. He's going to reverse creation. There will be a decreation. Everything will be swept away from the face of the earth. The earth, once again, will be empty. God says, I will sweep away man and beast. Really interesting, too. A little detail here. On day six of the creation account, the beasts are made first, and then man is created later that day. In this decreation account, the order is reversed. The man is swept away, then the beasts are mentioned. The beasts will be swept away as well. Uh, it goes on to say God will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Again, that's a reversal. In Genesis 1, fish are created, then birds. Here the order is flipped as God takes them away. So again, this decreation language. Go down to verse 10. We find judgment landing on the city of Jerusalem and different parts of the city are mentioned. These are significant, but we'll just sort of pass them by. The fish gate, the second quarter, the hills. These are the herbs and suburbs of the city, you could say. And Zephaniah is saying that these parts of the city will be destroyed. So this judgment is targeting Jerusalem. Now, when you get into chapter 2 and later parts of the book, again, you find that Gentile nations will be judged too. And different Gentile ethnic groups are mentioned, like the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites, so again, the Ethiopians, uh, the Assyrians, that would be the great empire of the day. They will all be judged 
as well. In fact, the picture that, that Zephaniah paints for us is of a judgment that begins in Jerusalem and then stretches out in every direction, north, south, east, and west, from Jerusalem. And Zephaniah's point then is that no one is exempt. No one can escape the Lord's judgment. No person, no city, no nation will be exempted from the searching spotlight of God's judgment. Another example of this judgment as decreation is found in verse 13. It's interesting that this verse echoes Deuteronomy. Uh, Again, we don't know for sure if Deuteronomy had been found by this point or not. I'm thinking probably not, but this is an echo of Deuteronomy's language. Uh, In Deuteronomy, you may recall, Moses describes the blessings that await the people of Israel as they enter into the promised land. And he says that when they go into the land God is giving them, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses says, they will enjoy houses they did not build, wells they did not dig, vineyards they did not plant. But now, in this coming judgment, Zephaniah says, your goods will be plundered, your houses will be laid to waste. He says, you'll build a house, but you won't get to live in it. You'll plant a vineyard, but you won't get to enjoy its wine. See, that is a reversal of the Deuteronomic blessing. Their labor now will be in vain. Before they were getting blessings they didn't even have to labor for. Now their labors will be all for naught. The works of their hands will be destroyed. Again, what do you see here? This is a decreation. This is a nation being torn apart at the seams, a nation being emptied of all blessing. The exodus, the conquest, and the building of the temple are all being reversed. But now turn from this description of the judgment. There's certainly more to say, but let's turn from Zephaniah's description of the judgment to the, uh, to the reasons for the judgment. We've seen the results of the judgment. What are the reasons for the judgment? And this too is very interesting. And I actually think this is Zephaniah, at least in the early part of the book, this is Zephaniah at his most relevant, most directly relevant to us. If this judgment is pending, If it's hanging over Judah and the other nations, why is it coming? Why is this judgment on the way? What are the sins they will be judged for? See if any of these sound familiar. Zephaniah spends a great deal of the book cataloging the sins of the people and the sins of various groups. I didn't even read enough of the book for you to see this, but let me give you some of the highlights here. Really, you could say lowlights. It's not a highlight reel. This is a lowlight reel. And what I want you to see here is how Zephaniah could be speaking just as easily of 21st century Americans as Israelites or Judahites in 600 BC. It looks like his ancient prophecy is ripped from the headlines in our day. Indeed, there's nothing new under the sun. The church has the same struggles, nations have the same idols, not a whole lot has changed. It's also interesting to note that Zephaniah, and again, we didn't read all the places where this is referenced, but Zephaniah, in describing the sins, he describes the sins of the people and the princes, so the the ordinary commoners, as well as members of the royal family. He describes the sins of the prophets and the priests, the sins of judges and businessmen, so people who are in the political sector and people who are in the, the business world. Virtually every category of people is targeted by Zephaniah's judgment here, by his evaluation and his critique. King Josiah, interestingly, is accepted because, again, Josiah is the one seeking to lead the nation in repentance and in reformation. 
but corruption is found virtually everywhere else. No institution can be trusted in Zephaniah's day. So pick up at verse 4. God says he will cut off the remnant of Baal. Baal was a pagan deity. God's going to cut off the priests and the worshipers of Baal. What's Baal all about? What was Baal worship all about? As a deity, Baal really stood for the forces and processes of nature. Uh, in the ancient world, they didn't really have secular materialists necessarily, the way that we uh, are familiar with them. But Baalism was very, very close. Baalism was sort of the ancient form of secular materialism or secular scientism because worshiping Baal, Baalism was really the worship of nature and natural forces. So consider something like this. Radical environmentalism would be a, a, an obvious modern day form of Baalism. Okay, radical environmentalism is a form of modern day Baalism. Scientism, not science, but scientism would be a form of Baalism as well. Think about what people in our society have been saying for the last few years. Follow the science. Okay, follow the science. The way it works in our culture, that's really an invitation to another religion. It's an invitation into another kind of discipleship. We Christians say, follow Jesus. The Baalists will say, follow science. Because they've turned their science into an idol. As Christians, we're not opposed to real science, true science. If you think of science as an empirical investigation of the physical world, developing and testing hypotheses to better understand the way God's creation works, that's wonderful. That kind of science can serve as a tool of dominion and a way to express love for neighbors. We develop technologies and so forth that can serve one another. But scientism, science that has been absolutized, science that has been weaponized into a kind of autonomous authority over everything, when men in white coats become your priestly rulers of society, as it were, that is Baalism, that is idolatry. And again, here I hope you can see, there's nothing new under the sun. We give false gods different names today, but we have the same idols as the ancient peoples. And judgment comes upon idols and those who worship them. Idolatrous worlds will get swept away. That's Zephaniah's point. Idolatrous social orders will not last because they cannot last because their gods are not true gods. Idolatrous societies self-destruct. Consider verse 5. Another form of idolatry. It speaks of those who bow down on rooftops to the host of heaven. That is, they bow before sun, moon, and stars. Now, do you know anybody who gets up on the rooftop and bows before sun, moon, and stars? Perhaps not. But before we dismiss that as irrelevant, consider how many Americans, especially American women, to be quite frank with you, begin their day by looking at a horoscope. That's what this is. Uh, astrology is still very much with us. And again, it is a kind of rival worldview, a kind of rival religion. I know we don't have newspapers in the traditional sense anymore, but uh, various news outlets online continue to have horoscopes and they continually to continue to be widely read. And things like this are not harmless. Belief in fate or in some kind of impersonal higher power belief in something like luck or chance or fortune that somehow controls our destiny. That's very common. It's very common, but it is 
idolatrous, and it's just the kind of thing that Zephaniah is talking about here. Syncretism is also a problem. People who want to say that they believe in the true God, but they want to mix that with the worship of other deities, and Zephaniah identifies that here also. Uh, Verse 5 gives an example of this. He talks about those who swear by the Lord, so they say they belong to Yahweh, and yet they also swear by Milcom. That is, they blend the worship of the true God with the worship of an idol. This is all over the place in our society today. Milcom has another name. There's another name that Milcom, this deity, goes by. That name is Molech. And you know what's interesting about Molech? This is the god that people would sacrifice their children to. And so these are people who swear by Yahweh. They say they belong to Yahweh, and yet they sacrifice their own children. That ought to hit really close to home. These are people who say they worship the Lord, the true God, but they also worship Molech and sacrifice their children to him. In today's terms, we might say that these are pro-choice Christians. <laughs> just, I mean, I hate to even have to say that, you know. Uh, I hate, uh, it just, it's uh, such an obvious contradiction. But there are people who claim to be Christian who are pro-choice. Just like in Zephaniah's day, there were people who would swear by Yahweh and also serve the god Molech. They believe in sacrificing children to Molech. Uh, They'll say they worship Jesus, but the reality is you can't have it both ways. You can't mix the true faith with idolatry. They are contradictory. But again, we see this kind of syncretism around us all the time. You've got people who want to worship the LGBTQ plus God and also worship Yahweh. They want to say they're Christian, but they also want to in some way approve of, well, maybe with varying degrees of approval, but still approve of the LGBTQ lifestyle. Uh, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi fall into this category. They would claim to be faithful Christians. They make that claim. They are still members in good standing of the Roman Catholic Church. But they swear by Molech. They swear by another god as well. They are liars. They are not true Christians. But that kind of syncretism, which is so common in our day, it was in Zephaniah's day as well. Verse 6 speaks of those who have turned their back on the Lord and do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is the sin of ignoring God's word, refusing to seek God's will and God's wisdom through his word. When the book of Deuteronomy was rediscovered in Josiah's day, in 2 Chronicles 34, he said, Go inquire of the Lord for me. Same verb that's used in Zephaniah. Zephaniah says the people do not inquire of the Lord. When Deuteronomy was rediscovered, King Josiah said, Go inquire of the Lord for me. What does it mean to inquire of the Lord? Well, what did Josiah mean? He was telling them to go read the word, study the law, see what it says, see what God is teaching us through his word. You seek God and you inquire of him by turning to his word and becoming a diligent student of the scriptures. Those individuals and societies who turn their back on God's word, who refuse to inquire of the Lord through his word, will only hear a word of condemnation. Again, I think this is very fitting to um, talk about this in America today. In America, we might as well have lost God's word just as they lost the book of Deuteronomy. Because for so many people, the Bible is nothing but an empty symbol. 
The Bible sits on the shelf collecting dust. Oh, sure, we have access to God's word if we wanted to consult it, but we don't use it. We don't give it. We don't yield to its authority in our lives. It doesn't guide our lives in any meaningful way. I mean, just generally speaking, in our culture, we have access to God's word, but we do not use it. We do not inquire of the Lord through his word. We've got Bibles. We've got more Bibles in this country than we know what to do with, but we remain biblically illiterate in our culture. We have turned our back on the Bible. And uh, so often if the Bible does get used, if it does get cited, what happens? It gets used, but it gets misused. It gets twisted and mangled in such a way that it's not being used faithfully. And so you will have unbelievers who will sometimes trot out a Bible verse for this or that progressive cause or what have you, but they're mangling and twisting Scripture. They're not being faithful to Scripture. If you do seek to quote the Bible properly and and apply the Bible properly to, say, some issue in the public square today, what happens? You're going to be shouted down and told, you can't use the Bible. This is a secular public square. You cannot use the Bible. It is religious. Separation of church and state. Haven't you heard of that? That's what we hear when we try to use the Bible, right? And if you take the Bible away, what are you left with? You're really just left with emotion and experience as the only authorities that are left. And that's why we have so much chaos in our land. Because the only way to have a well-ordered life and a well-ordered family and a well-ordered culture is to inquire of the Lord in his word and then put that teaching into practice. That's why we have so much chaos. We don't do this. We don't seek God in his word. Zephaniah is saying here, judgment will come upon those who have God's word, but who ignore it. Who instead of inquiring of the Lord by studying his word, ignore his word and turn their back on his word. To ignore the Bible is to ignore God. To turn your back on the Bible is to turn your back on God himself. And even in many churches, this is the case. Even in many churches that would claim to believe the Bible, the Bible's really not taken seriously. And the Bible's really not taught to the people. There is a widespread failure, even in the churches, to inquire of the Lord in his word. Zephaniah sees that as a reason for judgment. Verse 8, the king's sons will be punished and on all who array themselves in foreign attire. Now, we might think, what's the big deal here? Foreign attire. Probably most of us in this room are wearing foreign attire. It's actually kind of hard to buy something that was, <laughs> that's not foreign attire these days. What does clothing have to do with judgment, we might wonder? Well, remember this. All Israelites had a special uniform to wear according to Numbers chapter 15. They were told to wear garments with blue tassels at the corner as a sign and memorial of God's covenant and God's commandments as a way of setting themselves apart and saying, we belong to God. We are a heavenly people. We've got the blue tassels. We're going to seek to be faithful to God's covenant and God's commandments. Those blue tassels were on the wings or corners of the garment to indicate that we belong to God. We are his heavenly and holy people. But what do you have now? You have these elites from the royal house, these are members of the ruling class, the one percenters, you could say, the influencers, the social influencers of the day. And what are they doing? They have abandoned the uniform God gave to them, and they are dressing in a worldly way. They are dressing like foreigners. See, what is, what is Zephaniah describing here? This is worldliness. The point is not the clothes. Obviously, we're not under that law that says we have to have the blue 
tassels on the wings of our garments any longer. But what this shows you is that whenever God's people adopt a way of life contrary to the covenant, when we get more concerned with fitting into the world than being faithful to God, that invites God's judgment. You know, uh, David Wells said many years ago, worldliness is when sin becomes normal and righteousness seems strange. That's what's happening here. Clothing themselves in foreign attire, that was a way of saying, we want to fit in and be just like the people of the other nations. We want to be like the royal houses of the other nations. We want to be just like them. We want to fit in. Obviously, you've got a lot of this going on in the church today, and certainly it's something that is an affliction and invites God's judgment. Verse 9, it says, they leap over a threshold. This is an interesting one. There's there's, uh, there, there's different ways to understand this. Some think this is a reference to superstition, kind of like the reference to astrology earlier. This might be uh, referring to people who don't want to step on a sidewalk crack, so to speak. Uh, it's like having a lucky charm, being superstitious. Uh, superstitions are always pagan, uh, and so we shouldn't be governed by superstition in any kind of way. That, that's possible that that's what, he, what, what is here. Others think this is a reference to irreverent worship. They leap over a threshold into the house of God. They're uh, they're they're um, not reverent in how they come before God, how they come before God's presence. They're forgetting that God is holy. But actually, given the whole context here, uh, I think there's something else being referred to. The rest of verse 9 mentions their violence and fraud. They leap over the threshold so they can commit violence and, fra- and fraud. What's happening here? Or violence and theft. That'd be another way to read that. What's happening here, this leaping across the threshold is robbery. It is breaking and entering. It has to do with theft. This is a society that no longer respects private property rights. This is a society that no longer has any respect for property. It's interesting, in Doug Wilson's uh, new book on uh, Christendom, he makes the point that the commands do not steal and do not covet presuppose private property. Do not covet his house. Do not covet his wife. Do not covet his cattle. His, his, his. It's his property, not yours. There's the distinction. Property rights matter. And so Wilson goes on, he says, liberty must be understood in terms of durable goods. I really, really like that. Chesterton said basically the same thing. Chesterton said, Property is the positive form of liberty. Without private property, there is no liberty. And if we see our liberties being diminished, it's almost certainly because our property rights are not being upheld. We love one another in a godly society by respecting one another's property. Property rights are human rights. That's just how it is. But in Zephaniah's day, as in ours, those rights are not being respected. Zephaniah speaks of those who would leap over a threshold, leap over the threshold of their master's house in order to commit violence and fraud or violence and deceit or violence and theft. We see the same thing today. We've all seen the footage. People in one big American city after another, we've got people leaping over the thresholds, leaping over the threshold of a Walmart, leaping over the threshold of a Target, leaping over the threshold of a CVS. Why? In order to fill the owner's place with violence and deceit. Our cities are increasingly filled with violent crime that destroys property. There's looting, there's vandalism, there's robbery. Just saw the other day where Walmart is closing half its stores in Chicago because 
It's just not profitable anymore. There's just too much shoplifting and looting, and the shoplifters never get prosecuted. The looters never get prosecuted. And so it's just not worth having a store there. People leap over the threshold, they take what they want, and there is no consequence. The kind of society Zephaniah describes actually looks a lot like our society. Zephaniah even suggests this is a form of class warfare driven by envy. They fill the master's house with violence and with fraud or violence and theft. They do this because they are envious of the master and they think what the master has, they deserve. They have a spirit of entitlement, a spirit of envy. But we need to remember, tearing the economic fabric of a society always results in loss for everyone. Many today want to reinterpret these acts of destruction in our modern American cities as justified social protests, as if society itself could be blamed for the violence. You see that big riot they just had in, you know, in, in, a, in a big city? That's your fault. It's your fault they stole. It's your fault that they committed violence and theft. But the reality is, whatever role wider society might have to play, In scripture, individuals are always, always, always held responsible for their actions. And that's certainly what Zephaniah is doing here. He is holding responsible those who have committed these acts of fraud and deceit. But you know, it's not just the lower classes that can sin in these kinds of ways. Verse 11 goes on to mention traders and merchants who are greedy for silver And so we'll be cut off. The money handlers will be cut off. Verse 18 reminds us that those who trust in wealth will not be saved by it. Now we might ask the question, well, how do you identify a greedy merchant? Who counts as being greedy? Well, it's not by their success. It's not by their profit. There are perfectly lawful ways for merchants to prosper and make a profit. All you have to do is sell a product people want at a price they'll pay. And there's your prosperity, there's your profit. But it is also possible for merchants to become greedy and in a way to take what is not theirs. Uh, They can mislead customers, they can cut corners, they can cheat workers. These would all be manifestations of greed. Sometimes powerful people will use their power to manipulate the market. It's what crony capitalism is. Crony capitalism is a good example of this. Merchants who will team up with the state to control the economy and to enrich themselves at the expense of the commoners. Again, that's a manifestation of greed, the kind of thing that Zephaniah condemned. Zephaniah focuses quite a bit on economic sins, and he does so from both ends of the spectrum. I really like what Chesterton said because I think what Chesterton said addresses this so well. Chesterton once said... There is no real difference between a socialist system in which businesses are run by the state and a capitalist, I would say crony capitalist system, in which the state is run by big businesses. Okay, there's really no difference between a socialist system where businesses are run by a big state or crony capitalism, a crony capitalist system in which the state is run by big business. Either way, you get the same result. The people are defrauded. Verse 12 goes on to describe those who are complacent or indifferent to God. They just don't care about God. They don't expect anything from God. They don't expect him to act. He's not real to them. He doesn't matter. They don't fear him. Now, I could keep going on and on with this because Zephaniah does, but I hope you get the picture. 
Zephaniah could be just as easily speaking to our time and place as to his own. These are all reasons given for the coming judgment. And when you see them, it makes you realize that the church in our day and our nation and the nations all around us are ripe for judgment as well. Let me give you one more example of this, and then we'll, we'll move towards wrapping this up. One more example. This is actually from later in chapter 2, so I didn't read this one. But Zephaniah addresses Assyria. Assyria was the great superpower of the day. Assyria was the United States of 600 B.C., roughly. They were the great superpower of the day. And Zephaniah addresses Assyria, this great political power of the day. And in chapter 2, verse 15, he says this. Uh, Assyria it, it says this. I am, and there is none beside me. That is how the Assyrian Empire speaks. I am, and there is none beside me. I am. That's God's special covenant name, the name God gives to himself in Exodus chapter 3, when God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. In that language, there is none beside me, that's how God describes his own uniqueness as the one and only true God in Isaiah 45 Verse 5, what is Assyria doing when Assyria says, I am, there is none beside me? Assyria is committing blasphemy. Assyria is playing God. See, a, a, a state that recognizes no God above the state becomes God itself. The nation that recognizes no God above the state, that means that the state has become God. It's as if the state teaches us to pray, our ruler in the capital city, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy politicians will be done. Give us this day our daily bread through your socialist system. Forgive us for all our sins against the state and lead us not into the temptation of being politically incorrect. For thine is the power and the glory and the dominion forever. What do idolatrous states do? They turn citizens into subjects, and subjects into implicit worshipers. Worshipers of the state, idolatrous states, seek to catechize and disciple their subjects. Such nations think of themselves as the goal and center of, of history. They think of themselves as invincible. Assyria thought that way. It actually didn't last a whole lot longer. Then Babylon came along, and Babylon thought that way. Then eventually Rome came along. Rome thought that way. Many in America have thought that way as well. And you know, in every other empire where they've ever thought that way, they have been wrong. And Americans who think that way will be wrong as well. When Assyria says, I am, and there is none beside me, that is obviously blasphemous and arrogant. But is it any more blasphemous and arrogant than our own nation which redefines God's institution of marriage. Well, we can make marriage be whatever we want. It's a plastic man-made institution. We can recraft and reshape marriage however we want. Or when our nation says, when people in our nation, our culture say, we don't have to be stuck with this gender binary. You can be whatever gender you want. It doesn't matter what your biology says, how God made you. There could be dozens of genders. You pick your own. You make up your own gender. Gender is not something God created and God defines. You do it. You can create your own gender. Or when we say that life in the womb is expendable and so we can destroy it for the sake of convenience or destroy it for the sake of pleasure so you can continue to have sex without 
consequence. On and on we could go. These are all ways of saying, I am and there is none beside me. All ways in which our culture, our nation says, I am and there is none beside me. Modern Americans, modern America is really good at playing God too. We are an arrogant and blasphemous people just like the ancient Assyrians. Our state can act like God as well. And the thing is, and what we've seen with Zephaniah here, societies like this, societies in which the state becomes God and societies that are in rebellion against God, these societies create prototypes of hell. We know the church is supposed to create a prototype of heaven, be a pointer to heaven, to what's coming, to the new creation, to the final resurrection. When we rebel against God this way, we create prototypes of hell. We create hell on earth, pointers to hell, and that's what we're doing. See, Zephaniah describes a dystopian world. Judah and the nations are in rebellion against God, and they're about to realize this dream is going to turn into a nightmare, and the hammer of God's judgment will fall upon them. Zephaniah is pulling the fire alarm. He's sounding the warning, and he's calling upon them, to repent. Well, this is a bleak picture, right? Happy anniversary, by the way. <laughs> this sermon is kind of like a husband on his anniversary takes his wife to see a slasher movie. Probably not a good idea. I probably won't be asked back for your 30th anniversary, but you know, so be it. Zephaniah's prophetic assessment of the church in his day and the nations roundabout. This obviously sounds very, very familiar. It's a lot like the analysis we would give of our own culture. The world in Zephaniah's day was ripe for judgment. The world in our day is ripe for judgment. But Zephaniah is not done. Now we're going to see this a lot more tomorrow, okay, when we get to chapter 3. But even at the beginning of chapter 2, Zephaniah begins to show us rays of hope that judgment is not going to have the last word and judgment does not exhaust Zephaniah's message. Zephaniah is not done when he's talking about judgment. He's actually just getting started. And actually, if you do go on to the end of the book, you find that the book ends with a grand finale that is full of hope and redemption and promise and joy and those groans of suffering under God's judgment, suffering under God's wrath have been turned into Glorious songs of, of joy and, and, and peace and happiness. But let me close out tonight by pointing to the rescue from judgment that Zephaniah promises already in chapter 2 as he anticipates what is to come. Zephaniah makes it clear, we, all sinners deserve judgment. We all deserve judgment. But when the day of, of wrath arrives, does that mean we are all doomed? Is it possible for the day of the Lord to be a day of deliverance instead of a day of doom? Zephaniah's prophecy ends with a beautiful crescendo in chapter 3, as I said, where the darkness gives way to light and judgment gives way to this joyful singing, these cries of distress. It's all turned to joyful singing. But even here in chapter 2, Zephaniah shows us something really, really glorious. Zephaniah calls on the people to gather. Now, if you go back and look at chapter 1, earlier God was gathering them, but he was gathering them for judgment. He was gathering them up so they could be swept away. Now they're told to gather, only this gathering is going to be for worship. 
That word used there in the beginning of chapter 2, it's a word used for worship services, gathering for a liturgy. It's especially used for the Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Tabernacles, where the 70 bulls would be offered for the 70 nations of the world. The Feast of Ingathering was global. It was for Israel and for the Gentiles. In way of saying the whole world deserves judgment, but the whole world will be saved. The whole world deserves judgment, but the whole world is being offered salvation if the world would just gather and call on the Lord. Zephaniah describes an opportunity to repent. The window of salvation has not yet closed. There is still an opportunity. The chaff has not yet blown away. The chance to repent is still there. So Zephaniah says, gather before the decree, that is before this threat takes effect, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. I'm sure in historical context, Zephaniah here is seeing Josiah's reforms as an opportunity to escape judgment. If they'll just get on board of what Josiah wants to do. We can ask the question, what should they have done? What should we do? They should gather. They should gather and worship the Lord. The judgment has been described in liturgical terms. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 8, again, he, the Lord says there that he's prepared the sacrifice. He's going to sacrifice them in judgment. But now Zephaniah, in chapter 2, he says there is another way. If they will gather to worship the Lord, they will gather to offer sacrifice to the Lord. They do not have to be sacrificed by the Lord. Specifically, if they will gather and sacrifice their own pride. See, Zephaniah here calls them to humility. And what is humility other than the sacrificing of pride? It's the sacrifice of a, of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, If they will humble themselves, if they will seek righteousness and humility, then they will be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. Instead of being exposed to the judgment, they will be sheltered. They will be hidden and protected. See, judgment is coming, and what they need is a hiding place, a shelter from that coming storm. And Zephaniah says, you will find it in the Lord himself if you will only humbly seek him. Now, remember what Zephaniah's name means? Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides or the Lord shelters. How does this happen? Well, of course, ultimately, this is fulfilled in the gospel. What brings all of this together is Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the true Zephaniah. Jesus is the greater Zephaniah. Jesus on the cross becomes our place of shelter. Good Friday is the ultimate day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath. And it is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of God's judgment. But that judgment falls on the substitute. That judgment falls on Jesus. He is the ultimate and final sacrifice. He bears the wrath so we can be sheltered from that wrath. He's laid to waste so we can be rescued. He's swept away in a flood of judgment so we can be rescued and renewed. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Our lives are Zephaniah with Christ in God. Christ himself becomes our Zephaniah, the one who hides us. All those who trust in Christ, who worship Christ, who are united to Christ, find shelter in Christ. Christ is our hiding place. He is the one who hides us from the wrath of God. And what Zephaniah does, and this is so interesting, and I can only barely sketch this for you, and we'll talk about this more tomorrow. 
But Zephaniah, he's deconstructed, he's decreated everything. On the other side of the judgment, he's going to recreate everything. What happens when people seek the Lord? What happens when people are hidden in Yahweh? They become meek. That's how we're described in verse 3. And remember, Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. That's an eschatological promise, to be sure, that comes to fulfillment, to full realization at the last day in the resurrection. But even now, the meek can inherit the earth as, as the faithful church disciples the nations and gains ground for Christ. That's what history is all about. The growth of the church, gaining ground for Jesus, the meek inheriting the earth. Remember how I pointed out that Zephaniah's prophecy speaks to political rulers and priests and to the people, and they're all judged? Think about that hymn. G.K. Cited Chesterton a lot tonight, but Chesterton again. Think of his hymn, O God of Earth and Altar. Because this is really what it's about. Zephaniah is showing how all those different groups are deconstructed, but they're going to be reconstructed. That's just what Chesterton's hymn, O God of Earth and Altar, is about. In that hymn, he writes, Our earthly rulers falter, our people drift and die, the walls of gold entomb us, the swords of scorn divide. Chesterton is describing a society in which, in which institutions, our earthly rulers, our, our leaders, are failing us. And the people themselves are dominated by greed, just like those that Zephaniah describes. They're entombed by walls of gold. They're given over to theft and violence and division. There's a sword of scorn that divides people. That's what Zephaniah has described. But then that hymn continues, Take not thy thunder from us. That is, don't take your word from us. The thunderous preaching of your word, don't take it away from us. Remember what Zephaniah has said, don't turn your back on the word of God. Inquire of the Lord. Seek after him. Chesterton's hymn continues, but take away our pride. That's what Zephaniah is saying right at the beginning of chapter 3. Sacrifice your pride and become humble. That hymn is exactly Zephaniah's message. But then think about this. That hymn goes on to speak of easy speeches that comfort cruel men. Okay, that's what false prophets do. They lull people to sleep with false promises of comfort. But then the last verse of the hymn reverses all of that. It recovers all of it. And how does it go? Tie in a living tether prince and priest and thrall. That is Zephaniah's message. Tie together. Josiah and the priests and the people, tie them all together as one that they can serve God in a united way. What is Chesterton saying? Let the rulers in the state and the pastors over the churches and the people of the land all be bound together as one. Let us all be bound together, prince and priest and people. Let us all be bound together as one in a Christian society. Chesterton goes on, aflame with faith and free. He writes, lift up a living nation, a single sword to thee. That is exactly Zephaniah's hope. That if the people will repent, the land and the culture can be healed and preserved. They can be not only spared from the coming judgment, they can be abundantly blessed. And that must be our hope and our agenda as well. Zephaniah is calling on Judah and the other nations to turn to the Lord, to become discipled nations. In our day, we would call it Christendom. That was Zephaniah's project. That was Zephaniah's hope. That was his goal. It must be ours as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise 
for sending your son, the true and greater Zephaniah, the one in whom we are hidden from your wrath. But Father, we don't just want to be spared from your wrath. We want to see your kingdom built. We want to see a Christian society, a Christian culture. We want to see Christian families and businesses and states and nations. We want to see Christendom built, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would do this for the good of your people and for your, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.